If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. As we go to God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer. Most merciful Heavenly Father, would you speak to your people now as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word? Father, through your word and by your spirit, would you speak to us and renew our minds? Father, speak to your church here and all around the world is built and the earth is filled with your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Any of you all experienced a change of plans? Well, this time last week, I spoke what I thought I knew. And I thought that that series, What in the World is the Church, was going to conclude last Sunday. But, as you know from the email I sent on Friday morning, and as you've already heard, it's continued. I was certain, absolutely sure, that we were going to start the gospel according to Mark, Jesus uh, according to the Bible today, but the plans have changed. We're still in our series, What in the World is the Church? And over the last four weeks, we've seen that the church is a learning, loving, worshiping, and witnessing community. We've been in the classroom, and then in the family room, and then in the sanctuary, and last week we were at the front door where we welcome people as we go out. But today we're going out into the field of battle. Because the church is a community at war. Well, what happened? Why the change of plans? Well, this past Monday afternoon, I uh, went back in time. I found out that there was a United States Navy ship, a former United States Navy ship, LST-325, pierside in downtown Cincinnati. And you just cannot keep a sailor away from the sea. And so I had in mind to teach my children a little bit of what I experienced a number of years ago when I served in the Navy and was on sea duty. Well, it was about 3.30 in the afternoon and we were walking um, through the bow ramp. And as soon as we got on board the ship, my children can attest to the truth of the statement, I smelled the smell. Now, I look out right now and I see four Navy veterans here, which is an amazing uh, group here. At times, I thought I was the only one, but in this thing, there are at least four Navy veterans here. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Smell the smell, the ship, the, the, the dirt, the paint, the, the equipment. The, it wasn't saltwater smell, but it was almost there, you know, former saltwater smell, sweat. The, the ventilation systems, the smell was bad. And you know how sense of smell works, right? I mean, 
You smell something, it can take you right back. Well, with that experience, I was taken immediately back to three years of sea duty on a destroyer out of Norfolk, Virginia. But this week, I've smelled the smell again. I've smelled the smell again. It's as if we've stepped onto the field of battle once again. Now, let me take you back a few more years to the 1930s. The Prime Minister in 1938 of Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain, um, had a Munich agreement with Adolf Hitler, the ruler of Germany at the time, and, and they made an agreement over how they were going to deal with Czechoslovakia. And Neville Chamberlain came back from Munich as almost a conquering hero, as far as a British prime minister can act like a conquering hero. And he stands outside of 10 Downing Street, the residence of the British prime minister, and he says this, quote, my good friends, this is the second time there has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. Well, those of you that know how world history unfolded, less than a year after that agreement, the German aggression continued with the invasion of Poland, and pretty soon all of Europe is plunged into the Second World War. Peace for our time? Really? Most definitely, yes. Think of, with me of Simeon's song in Luke chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And you'll remember Jesus is presented in the temple and Simeon, beginning in verse 28, he took him, that is Jesus, the baby Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, in seeing Jesus, the salvation God had promised, could depart in peace. Grace and peace. The name of our church reminds us all the time there is peace with God. And because of that, there is peace with one another. But you know what? This is a question. Is there peace for our time that can be answered yes and no? And brothers, that is not a weasel answer. That is not a compromised answer. Yes, peace through Jesus. And no. No. Why? Because peace with God means war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and about every month we would get as a family in the uh, mail a newsletter from the Western North Carolina Conference. And I actually read this newsletter, it was in the form of a newspaper, and I remember clearly one, one day reading this article, and it had this quote, 
Here is a strange thought in this world, and it is an erroneous thought. Some people believe when a man is right with God, he has peace with God, with himself, and with the world. But that isn't so. His soul's enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you are going to have peace with God, you are going to be at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. I used to carry that cutout clipping in my wallet until it deteriorated and fell apart. But thankfully, before that happened, I actually copied it, handwritten, and then typed it. So I've got it. Peace with God means we are at war. In just a few months, we're going to recognize Advent, the incarnation, Christmas. And children, what is it about? What is Advent about? The coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the eternal Son of God in the flesh. In the flesh. Well, in view of this theme of being at peace with God and at war, why did Jesus come? He tells us clearly that, uh, you know, the, uh, Matthew, uh, you know, they'll name him Jesus because he will save his, his people from their sins. But, but why did Jesus come? He came, of course, to save um, uh, the lost, right? But hear these words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, we read in Matthew 10. John writes in his first letter, which we looked at recently, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the author to the letter to the Hebrews says this, through death, he, that is Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus come? Brothers and sisters, part of the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ is Jesus came to pick a fight. Jesus came to pick a fight. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Gentle Jesus in a manger came to destroy and to deliver. And we see that even more clearly in Revelation. As warrior Jesus is on the white horse, King of King and Lord of Lords. Jesus came in grace and he will return in glory. And that's why today is the day of salvation. And that's why all people are going to bow the knee to Jesus. That's a guarantee. It's just, is it before he returns or on the occasion of his return? Jesus came to do battle with the enemy of God. For those of us in Christ, His enemy is our enemy. Well, we're going to go from Acts chapter 2 to the letter to the Ephesians. And turn with me to chapter 6, where we're going to pay attention for the next few minutes to verses 10 through 18a, primarily verse 10. So join with me as I read this extended metaphor, this image, this picture of a sustained portrayal of the Christian life as spiritual warfare. 
fault with the resources that God provides. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The warfare shows up at the beginning, at the end of this letter. Finally, it's not finally like coming to a conclusion of the letter. Hey, I've been writing for these five and a half chapters. Now let me finally say something. No, finally, from here on out, henceforth, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, let me set the stage very briefly. Ephesians, one of Paul's prison epistles. It's written to encourage Christians dwarfed by a pagan and pluralistic culture. Uh, When was Ephesians written? 2015? The church is dwarfed by a pagan, pluralistic, unbelieving, and aggressively hostile culture. Absolutely pertinent to our day. Six chapters. And for those of you familiar, there's a, the chapters one through three, and then chapters four through six. It's a combination, a magnificent, a glorious, a marvelous combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, kind of like what we've been talking about, about the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. It's what God has done in Christ and what must we do in Christ as a consequence. And here in Ephesians, we see the grammar of the gospel. Everything Paul urges us to do from verses uh, chapter 4, verse 1 onward is dependent on everything he has already told us God has done. Our faithfulness is a response to God's grace. Christianity begins and indeed ends with what God has done in Christ for us and our salvation as the Nicene Creed so rightly captures. The Christian life is becoming what we already are declared to be in Christ. And the summary of Ephesians is God is uniting all things in Christ and making all things new, a new man, a new society. All things new. And look with me in verses chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And through the end of chapter 5, it's about the harmony of new relationships. Harmony. But beginning 
in verse 10 of chapter 6, it's hostility. Paul moves from harmony of new relationships to the hostility that the Christian will encounter. Finally, be strong, he says. Why? Why are we commanded to be strong? Why? Because we are in a battle. In other words, Paul is saying, from now on, keep doctrine and duty together in the context of the conflict, the war, the battle. Well, let's first consider the battle we face. I hope you were able to read the quote from Sinclair Ferguson that I included in the email on Friday and I snuck it in again today as the something to think about quote, repetition. We are in an irreconcilable war. A war against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, um, I'm preaching to the choir, right? We are in a war against our own sinful tendencies, right? Yes, there's the pardon from the guilt of sin. And yes, one day there will be deliverance from the very presence of sin. But in the meantime, there is the war where we now have a new power to fight. But oh, my friends, we have a great obstacle in front of us. It's our own sin, our own flesh. And Satan, our, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, loves to exploit that. Paul is instructing us to put off and put on and put off and put on and put sin to death, but it wars against our soul and we know it. The obstacle is our own sin, but it's also the obstacle of the world. Not only is the world opposed to Christians, but the world allures Christians. If the world can't stop us, it tries to woo us. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, the world, the world system, the things that are designed and working that are godless and unbelieving and attempting, uh, that are under the rule of the prince of the power of the air that's opposed to God, the world. You know, Christians live in the world. We're to be good stewards of the world. But the world is opposed to us and it wants to either break us or win us. And if it can't stop us with sheer power and might, it it at times wants to sweetly call us over. The world is an obstacle. But then there's the obstacle of God's enemy. And what is the greatest strategy and indeed the greatest tactic of the enemy? It's got to be this. He doesn't exist. Now, to be sure, there could be an overemphasis where all people see is this manifestation of the enemy of God, of Satan, of the devil, the adversary. But oh, my friends, do not for a moment believe that he does not exist. Scripture is absolutely clear. His greatest strategy and tactic, he doesn't exist. And what is the call of Ephesians. The call is for unity and purity, and it's complicated because of the presence of hostile forces. Why the command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? Why? 
Are we told that? Why? Because we're in a battle, a war, a spiritual war. Brothers and sisters, the peace of Christ is experienced in the middle of hostilities. The peace of Christ is known when we're on the front lines of warring against our own sin, against the world system around us, and against the very enemy of God. This struggle is our lot in life in this time between the already of Christ coming, indeed his resurrection, and the not yet of his promised return. There will one day be a cessation of hostilities, but we're not there yet. And because the Christian life is a battle, all of us right now are living in a war zone. The conflict, the hostility, the battle, the war takes place in ordinary, everyday life. It takes place when we're preparing to come to church, doesn't it? It takes place at the dinner table. It takes place in the kitchen. We all know the words that come out of our mouth, and where did that come from? And the person sitting across the table is all of a sudden our enemy? We know the phone call when we get from a business associate where we put the phone down so hard that it breaks. We've been there. We've done that. And what's interesting is these these battles seem to erupt out of nowhere. Or do they? Well, if it's our flesh, they're erupting out of our heart. If it's coming from the world, it's just the air we breathe and the water we drink. You know, the Eagles, for those of you old rock and roll fans, the Eagles had that song, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Not the Christian. We may have a peaceful feeling, uh, we, may have a, we may have a peaceful feeling, but it is a hard feeling. Because the Christian life, as I told somebody the other day, is, as it were, power on all the way to the end. In the words of my spiritual mentor and dear friend who's with the Lord, you glide like a rock. It's the aircraft that all of a sudden the engines go out. Yeah, it can glide for a little while, but eventually it comes down. It's power on all the way. I think this is where we need to recapture the term of the church now here on earth as the church militant. One day, and it's going to be a glorious day, the church is going to be the church triumphant. No sin, no struggle, perfect at peace in the presence of God. But until then, the church is the church at war, at battle. Now, What is the enemy we face? What is the enemy we face? Look with me at Ephesians 2.2. Ephesians 2.2. He says, We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is that? It's Satan. It's the devil. Look with me at uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. Interesting. Our sin, as it were, opens the door and says to God's enemy, come right in, you'll feel at home. I was with some people the other day in this man's prayer. He says, I want a holy hatred of sin. He's like, right now, I toy with sin, and I want God to give me a holy hatred of sin. The enemy we face. And you heard it again in verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul is not afraid to say it right out. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Defeated, absolutely. Harmless, don't bet your life on it. Our enemy, God's enemy, is powerful, he's wicked, and he's cunning. Martin Luther recognized that, and when he wrote the hymn that we opened with, on earth is not his equal, right? No earthly resistance. His identity and his, his um, identity and his strategy is sort of wrapped up together to deceive. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to give us two lies, two lies to believe. The first great lie of the enemy is this. You will not surely die. Kids, where do you, where'd you hear that before? How about Genesis 3, the fall of man into sin? You will surely not die. And you say, I know the wages of sin is death, but man, how could this be so wrong when it feels so right? Oh, you're not going to surely die. Brothers and sisters, the echo of Genesis 3 continues in our own ears. Surely you will not die. But when we recognize that, yeah, sin is serious, and the wages of sin is death. You know what? Satan goes into his toolbox and pulls out lie number two. And you know what lie number two is? A sinner like you is beyond saving. Isn't that interesting? He's got you at both ends and he's playing both ends against the middle, as it were. Surely you won't die if you sin, but if you do sin, you won't be forgiven. That's why the truth of God's word has got to expose and counter these two great lies. Some of you may know a little bit about Martin Luther, the great German reformer. You may know the story in the Wartburg Castle when Luther was translating the, um, the uh, Vulgate, the Latin Bible, into German. And he is... A scholar, he was trained in the humanities and the, the original languages, and he's a professor. And so he's working on taking this Latin and putting it into German so the people can read the Word of God. Well, there is a story, and whether it's absolutely true or not, I don't know, but the story goes like this. He's working, and he's feeling opposition, and he's getting distressed and despair and mad, and it's not going right. And he sees on the shadow 
a shadow on the wall. Maybe the sun is setting and it's coming through a window and he sees a shadow and, and he sees it and he looks, it looks like the devil. And what does he do? He takes the inkwell that he had and he throws it at the wall. Luther wasn't the first to throw the inkwell at the devil. Our Lord in the wilderness threw the inkwell at the devil. It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time Satan came with the temptation of his lies, he went back to the word of God. It is written. And the word of God will expose the lie and the word of God will counter the lie. We've heard the command. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We know the reason why it's given because Paul wants us to know that we're in a battle. So in order to be strong in the Lord, you have to believe two things. Not believe in two things, but actually believe two things. First, you are weak. And second, God is strong. In other words, in order for us to do, or more accurately, to be something, that is to be strong, we must believe two things. We are very, very weak. And God is very, very strong. Let's think about the weakness we possess. Why are we weak? I think there's two reasons. First, we're weak because we're still sinful. We're still sinful. A Christian is a forgiven sinner, but a Christian is a sinner. That's why Luther could talk about a, a Christian being simultaneously just or forgiven and sinful. It doesn't provide excuses or rationalizations for sin. It just describes the reality of the already and the not yet. We are weak because we are still sinful. Our own strength is inadequate for the task. We are weak. You and I are weak. You and I are in ourselves are desperately weak and desperately in need of help. But we're also weak not only because we're sinful, but because we are human. We are finite, and the enemy that we face is what? Superhuman. Whether it's the demonic angels that have fallen, whether it's Satan, whether it's the devil, the enemy we face, the spiritual forces, and indeed the, the person is superhuman. It's humans up against the superhuman. And who is going to win in and of ourselves versus that? In his movie, Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood. Have you ever heard Dirty Harry quoted in a sermon? It's now. A man's got to know his limitations. Brothers and sisters, we are limited. We are finite. We are human. We are sinful and human. But I don't want to let that drive you into despair because the enemy would love nothing more than, okay, we are weak, we are sinful, we are human, therefore let me you know, build a second level in my house of despair, okay? 
We're weak because we're sinful and because we're human. And yet I want to tell you all that that is a very comforting thought. It is not terrifying as you might think it is, but rather it's comforting. Why? Because brothers and sisters, when we recognize that we are weak, it drives us, it motivates us, it pushes us to find strength. And brothers and sisters, for the Christian, it leads us to nowhere else other than God. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. What a beautiful hymn. And here's this line. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Who can sing that song right now? Who of you can sing, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Brothers and sisters, this past week and before that, and by God's grace, from here on out, I've been in your homes. I've been in your places of work. For that matter, I've been in my own home, and I've looked in the mirror. And the battle is going on. People are tired. People are discouraged. People are short with one another at times. People lash out. I've been there, done that, seen it. It's all around us. We are weak people. We are weak. We are sinful and we are human. So that's the first belief. We are weak. But belief number two is God is strong. Let's look at the strength God provides. God is strong because Christians cannot stand on their own because you and I are no match for a superhuman power. We must rely upon the Lord's strength, His own might, and He provides it chiefly through His Word and Spirit as we, as it were, access it through prayer. And where is God's power most made known? Does God... Where in the Bible, by the way, is that well-known quote, God helps those who help themselves? Absolutely nowhere to be found. God does not help those who can help themselves. God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. God does not come alongside the successful and the beautiful and the, uh, the, the cool, the gospel counters the cool. Whatever the society at any moment thinks is cool, the gospel blows holes in cool. God does not come alongside and bring, you know, crippled people uh, along. He brings dead people to life. That's the extent of our weakness. We heard it earlier in John Excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 12, God's power is made perfect in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our consistent ability to do X. Absolutely not. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. You want to know where God is at work and powerful? Go to your weakness and put the hands up in surrender. That's where God is at work. For Paul concluded, for when I am weak, 
then I am strong. And that is not a contradiction. That is a truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. God provides us strength in and through Jesus Christ. Ephesians is all about being in Christ, union with Christ. Paul writes in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He does not say, I can do all things in my own ability. I can do all things in my own wisdom. I can do all things because I was well-educated. I had perfect attendance at uh, rabbi school. I did this, that, and the other. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In preparing for this message, I ran across the writing of an Anglican minister by the name of John Barrage. He, He wrote the hymn, Jesus cast a look on me. He lived in the 1700s. And this is what he wrote when looking at this particular passage. He said this. Once I had gone to Jesus full of airs and graces. In other words, full of himself. I thought, if he is somebody, well, I am somebody too. If he is special, then so am I. If he has merit, then so do I. Barrage continues, I used Jesus like a healthy man carries a walking cane and twirls it in the air. Today, he is my whole crutch. I can't stir a foot without him. He is my all as he ought to be is if He is my Lord and Savior. My heart never has any rest until it rests on Him wholly. He goes on to write, You will not appreciate the Son of God unless you have first discovered how weak you are. You'll never rely on the Lord unless you're made aware that the only way you are going to get through today and this week and this winter ahead is by His almighty power. Brothers and sisters, is Jesus some kind of trick cane that we're spinning as we walk down the the hallways of life? Or is Jesus the crutch that we have to lean on to get anywhere in life? I don't care if the world says Christianity is a crutch. They are absolutely correct. Christianity is a crutch for weak and wounded and sick and sore people like you and me on the road to heaven. Not there yet. But on the road. And God provides us strength through Jesus Christ. And I want to show you as we wrap up shortly that the power that He provides is resurrection power. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Brothers and sisters, the might that God provides is resurrection power. Resurrection power. So back to the command, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? It means to know that you are weak.
We are in for a fight, and it's a fight to the finish. And in this fight, remember that two things. Humility must come before resistance. Notice that Ephesians 4 begins with humility. Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and it ends with resistance. It ends in warfare. It ends in the fight. We're called to be humble as Christians, and we're called to be strong as Christians. Turn with me to James real quick. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. What do we see there? James chapter 4. Therefore, it says, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves Therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you heard what we just read, uh, read and prayed through from First uh, Peter 5. What? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves. Then be sober-minded, be watchful, and then resist him firm in the faith. Did you see the order? Because of pride, we are to humble ourselves and then we are to resist. So much of us, most of the time, so many of us, most of the time, we want to resist in our own strength. And God says, humble yourself, then resist. So despite the irony of Neville Chamberlain's statement, is it possible for there to be peace for our time? Yes, absolutely. Peace is found through none other than Jesus Christ. Simeon and all of us can rest in peace. But no, no. Being at peace with God means that we're at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. A great title for the Christian life book would be War and Peace and War. War and peace and war. The Christian life that is here on earth. We are called to be strong because we're in a war fighting the good fight of the faith. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of the battle that many of us are facing, whether it's the battle with your own flesh, whether it's the battle with the world, whether you are right now, for some reason, have the the uh, target drawn on your back and God's enemy is firing fiery darts at you. Whatever the case may be, be of good cheer. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And not only... He must win the battle. Brothers and sisters, he has won the battle. Chamberlain said, go home and get a good night's sleep. From God's word, we are to go home and rest in peace. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us 
of the battle that we face. Thank you for reminding us of the weakness we possess. And thank you for reminding us of the strength that you provide. Oh, Father, would you help us individually as families and as a church wage this battle with the means by which you have given us your word and spirit. Father, in most battles, when you go to your knees, you're about to get killed by the enemy. But in this battle, when we go to our knees, it's at the height of our strength. So, Father, be pleased to pour out your spirit upon your people and enable us to be of good cheer as we fix our eyes on our suffering, our conquering, and our soon-to-be-returning Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, for providing strength where we are weak. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to respond.